Good evening. Konbawa. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, just to share with you my youthfulness. Um, <laughs> me and Richard, as we were flying home, we uh, felt the little bump, and the guy was just about to serve us. We were playing cards, and uh, and we see like a little bump, and, and the guy, I, we think it was kind of maybe his first flight or one of his couple first flights because, you know, whenever you go on a plane, they always do the, the safety spiel, right? And I've never ever, as many times as I've flown, I've never seen a flight attendant actually put on the, the oxygen mask, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Doing the, the safety thing. What they usually do is they hold it like this, and then they take and they spread it the rubber band out with their hand, their hand like this, right? And they go like this, but they don't actually put it on, right? Well, this guy, he puts it on, and he has it on there for a couple minutes, and, you know, he's pulling the tabs to show you how to tighten it and everything. And I'm looking at him going, Richard, I've never seen a guy actually put it on. He's like, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one either. Maybe he's new. Well, then, because a couple hours later, he's serving the food. He's just about to serve us, and, and we hit a little bump. And he gets this horrified look on his face. Like, he feels like, like, man, he's, he's dead. He's already dead. It looked like he just, he was already. And then we hit the big bump. And he drops down like this. He's on the ground. And like Patty said, he's holding up for dear life, looking around like, what's going on? What's going on? It was hilarious. And so me and Richard were cracking up. But, but it really wasn't as bad as it sounds. <laughs> it really wasn't. It, Let's put it this way. Richard and I, we were, we had a good time with it, and we were like waiting for the next one. <laughs> and so when we got our food, Richard's holding his tray up, like waiting for the next bump so he could kind of throw it in the air and have fun with it. So it was a good time. We didn't have to worry about the turbulence. So <laughs> it wasn't bad. We did have a wonderful time, though. You know, I went expecting to lose a lot of weight after uh, Richard's stories of all the food and how horrible it is. And I went there, and uh, surprisingly enough, they have pretty good food there. You don't have to worry about food if you ever go to Japan. They do have a lot of weird stuff that George will eat. Um, (laughs) But they also have chicken that you can eat at those weird places, too. So you have uh, plenty of opportunities, and everywhere you go, there was never the time that I missed a meal or went hungry Uh, Quite the contrary, I stuffed myself like you wouldn't believe. And so we had a great time with the food. So don't ever worry about the food. The people, uh, you know, a lot of people are asking me, well, what's the the one thing or the highlight of the trip for you? Well, we went over and we did a lot of ministry. And there was ministering to that lady. There was the children's ministry conference. Um, We, I I taught uh, several times uh, once at the, the children's ministry conference and Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel Ginoan and also Wednesday evening at uh, Pastor Rick's church at Calvary Chapel Okinawa and uh, we got to see a lot of things, hang out with a lot of people, talk to a lot of people, a lot of ministry took place. But for me personally, the, the highlight of it and the, the thing that I enjoyed the most was really just getting to see the fruit of what God has been doing there. Uh, being my first trip to Okinawa, I had no idea what to expect as far as the ministry that was there and how things were going. But to to actually get to meet the body uh, at Calvary Chapel Ginoan, where Pastor Tom is is uh, 
pastoring and he started the church there and and he teaches in English it's very interesting to teach this way uh with the with an interpreter so he teaches and and says a phrase or says a thought and then the interpreter says the other says the same thing in Japanese and they go back and forth like that to reach out to the Japanese and uh, just it was wonderful to see what God was doing there and then to go to Calvary Chapel Okinawa and and see their their building that they'll have to move out of next year and uh see what God's doing there and meet the body. You know, I've, uh, like you guys, we pray for them so regularly on Wednesday nights and throughout the week. And, and so it was just awesome for me. The, the blessing for me was to get to see the fruit of that and to see all the work that God has been doing. And I do want to encourage you to go. And that's why this evening we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I've titled this message, Ministry God's Way. Because I want to encourage you and I want to challenge us as a body to really be involved in ministry. And ministry is not just something that takes place here at church, but it it does take place here at church. It also takes place with your family and in your workplace. It also takes place on the mission field. And I want to encourage you in that you are called to the ministry. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's one of those passages that reminds us and demonstrates to us that God's ways are not our ways, as Isaiah 55 tells us. When God is recruiting servants, when he's recruiting people of God to do the work that he wants to do, he looks for different qualities than you or I would. He has a different standard than we do. Jesus, if you remember, he demonstrated this when he picked his disciples. Because he didn't go to uh, Jerusalem to find the brightest rabbis or he didn't go and find the, the most religious Jews. He picked fishermen and tax collectors and, and just regular people that would not be expected to change the world. And God has not changed. It's still the way he works. He desires to enlist the ones that we think cannot be used, which includes you and I. And so two things this evening that I want to start with and two things that you need to know as we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Number one, please know that every person is called to ministry. You are called to ministry, to full-time ministry. It might not be your occupation. You might not be called to be a a pastor, to be on staff uh, at a church or, or ministry organization or missions organization. But everyone is called to ministry. That is reaching out to others with the gospel and reaching out to others to build them up in the faith. It's what the Great Commission is all about in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And it applies to you. You are called to make disciples. God has asked you and requested of you, those of you who are born again, to make disciples and to lead others to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul also explains that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, where he illustrates there the importance of every part of the body of Christ. It's not just these specific elements or these elites or these evangelists, but it's it's the, the body of Christ that does the ministry. It's the body of Christ that does the work of the ministry, and that's you. You're called to the ministry. The second thing I want you to know and remember as we start uh, in 1 Corinthians this, morning, this evening, is that nothing of eternal value can be done without the working of the Holy Spirit. He, you're called to ministry. He calls you to, to do his work, but he doesn't call you to do it on your strength 
or in anything that you have to offer. He calls you to do it by allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you. And nothing of eternal value can be done without the working of the Holy Spirit. You can feed people, you can clothe people, you can do lots of great things, offer wonderful uh, advice, but if it's not of the Spirit of God, it, it is temporary. It does not last, and it's not effective in bringing someone to salvation. God wants to use you, and this next year, we're, we're looking forward to 2007, and uh, as leadership here, we're looking forward on the calendar to the different outreaches that we will be involved in and, and be doing and the, the different missions trips that we'll be looking to do. We do pray that um, God would open the doors for us to go again next year to, to Okinawa in December to do the same thing, a children's ministry conference, and open it up to more of the churches in the area as well as a VBS and reach out to more of the kids in the area. And, and we know that God wants to do a great work there. We're also looking to do uh, a trip to Watsonville in, uh, later in the year and uh, to minister to the Spanish-speaking culture up there and to, to go to Idaho uh, probably in, in the latter part of April, uh, we're praying about. And so there's lots of different events and opportunities and things that we're going to be looking forward to. And as we look forward to those, I want to encourage you and remind you that God wants to use you. Because if you've been born again, you're a part of the body of Christ. You're called to ministry. And that's ministry here at this fellowship. It's ministry in your workplace, with your family, on the mission field. God can use you and wants to use you in all of those areas. You are called to make disciples. You're called to strengthen one another. You're called to share the gospel and to serve others around you. But you cannot do it your way. And so as we acknowledge that everyone has the call to ministry, what we need to learn is not ministry our way, but ministry God's way. And that's what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Please read with me. Let's read uh, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, let or he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Verse one of chapter two. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we look into your word this evening, we pray, God, that you would send your spirit to minister to our hearts. God, that we would learn to do ministry your way and not our way. God, we ask that you would open our eyes. 
Lord, if we're not involved in ministry, if we're not reaching out and ministering to those around us, we ask that you would convict us, Lord, that you would challenge us to be bold and to reach out with the gospel message. And Lord, if we're doing things our way and not your way, we ask, Lord, that you would convict us, Lord, that you would turn us, that that we might be able to effectively work ministry in the hearts and lives of others, but Lord, by the power of your spirit and not our strength or our wisdom. God, we ask that you would inspire us, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would fire us up to minister to the people that you bring into our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, with the message of the cross, with your word, and nothing else. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified here this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We start in verse 26, where Paul, he's talking about the gospel message. And he says to the Corinthians, You see your calling, brethren. Not many are wise, according to the flesh. Not many are mighty, nor are many noble that are called. Paul says, look around. It's observable. It's noticeable. You can tell by looking around, by knowing the people and the body of Christ that are next to you. You can tell and you can know there's something different about the way that God works. In fact, look around this evening and see who is next to you in the seats around you. You will notice there's not very many who are wise. There's not very many who are noble. Because Paul says there's not many wise, noble, or mighty are called. There, there's not ma- a few, maybe, but not many. Of course, you probably think you're the exception. And uh, that may be, but probably not. You're not the exception, most likely, because there's not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise who are called. And anytime you are around the people of God, look around and you can see it. There's not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are called. It's always interesting in June as we go to the the senior pastors conference in Murrieta and to, to be around a thousand other Calvary Chapel pastors and you begin to realize there's not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty that are called. It's God's way and it's not our way for sure. This principle applies in salvation, but also in ministry. Remember what Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 19. He told his disciples, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not about the physical and and outward things. It's not the mighty, the noble, and the wise who are called. Then who is it that is called? Well, he tells us in verses 27 and 28. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So Paul tells us, here's who God has chosen. Not the wise, mighty, and noble, but the foolish, the weak, the base, the despised, and the things which are not. These are the ones that God calls. These are the ones that God has chosen. He hasn't chosen the great and the excellent and the the mighty, but he's chosen the weak, the base, which means the, the lowly or those with no name. Those who are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not, God has chosen. It takes some time for us to get used to because it's so backwards for us. 
Think about it for just a second. How do restaurants operate? When they're looking for a chef, you know, they don't advertise, well, we look for the cooks who are not qualified to cook our food. Of course they don't advertise that. That's not the way they operate because they won't have very much, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Business. They won't have much business. A lot of people aren't going to come there if their method is, well, we hire the ones who aren't qualified. Or, you know, they have everywhere, we bake our own bread daily, right? Well, what if they put up a neon sign that says, we don't break our, bake our bread daily. We go to the, the week-old bakery store and, and buy the, the, the bread that's left over after last week, and, and that's what we serve in your sandwiches. Well, again, they're not going to get very much clientele. They're not going to get much business because who wants that? Who wants someone who's not able to cook your food? Who wants last week's bread? And we can apply this to all kinds of different areas. But you get the picture. It's backwards for us. For example, who would you choose? Those of you who are single when you're looking for a spouse, do you look for the wise, mighty, and noble, or do you look for the weak, and the foolish, the base, the despised? Is that on your list of the, this is what I need my spouse to be? No, of course not, right? You, you look for the best. You, that's our hearts. That's the way that we choose and the way that we pick things. Now, the reality is, none of us, there's no person, no human, who is wise, mighty, or noble. God supersedes us by far. And so we might be wise, mighty, or noble when compared to one another. But when put in the proper perspective, there's none of us who are wise, mighty, or noble. You might think you are. But you know, if you do think you are, then don't expect God to save you. And don't expect God to use you. Because if you're full of yourself, He can't fill you. He can't save you. He can't use you. Salvation happens. Salvation takes place when we realize our need for God. When we realize our need for a Savior. Not when we realize how wonderful we are. And ministry is the same way. Ministry really can happen. Ministry can really take place when we realize our need for God. Which a lot of times for us is not a problem in the beginning. We first get saved and we, I'm not qualified. I'm not able to go and minister. But then get involved in Sunday school and be there for five years. And now, where do we usually go? Well, I'm qualified. I have a lot of experience. I've taught every age grade. I can come up with all kinds of lessons and material. Give me a passage. I'll teach it. No problem. It's very easy for us to move away from our dependence upon God and to remain weak, foolish, base, despised, the things that are not. It's so important for us to remember the principle of God, who he calls and who he chooses. It's not according to our perspective and the way that we would pick. He chooses the foolish, the weak, the base for a specific reason. It's found in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, the whole point is that God gets the glory. He does it his way because then he gets the glory and not the person, not the instrument. His purpose is that so that no one can say, look at me, look at how wonderful I am, look at what I have accomplished and what I have done, and so that 
when ministry takes place, when salvation occurs, the finger goes to God. Look at him. Look at what he has done. Look at how great he is. If you can earn your salvation, then you can receive credit for it. But salvation is a gift of God, and you do not deserve it. Neither do I. If you can merit being used by God, well, God uses me because I'm worthy of it. You know, I've proved myself, and and I'm worthy of, of God being able to use me, and so that's why he uses me. Well, then I can receive credit for God using me. But the fact is, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it, and neither are you. See, God says, I pick the lowly, the foolish, the weak, so that no one can look at themselves, but they have to. They're forced to look at me and give me glory. Oh, we're so quick to glory in ourselves, to think, you know, God saved me because, you know, he knows my background or he he knows the type of personality that I have and how I'd be able to influence other people or impact other people or he knows what type of person I could be or it's not anything about us. It's completely the contrary. It's because we lacked everything that was necessary that God saved us and chose us to be used in ministry. Understand that God loves you. He died on the cross for you, and he desires to use you, but not because of you. He's done all that in spite of you, because we're weak, foolish, lowly, despised. We're the things which are not, and he wants to use us so that he gets the glory. Verses 30 and 31 demonstrate that principle in salvation. He says, but of him... You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus did it all for us. Our salvation is not the product of our hard work, but his death. He became for us wisdom because we're not wise. Righteousness because our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us. He became for us sanctification because we're not sanctified. We're not set apart. He became for us redemption because we were in bondage and needed to be redeemed. We are hopeless and helpless without God. We have nothing, no wisdom, no good works, nothing that amounts to any value as far as eternity is concerned. Salvation comes to those who recognize their lack, their need for a Savior. And that Jesus Christ is the Savior they need. And so once again, all glory goes to God. That, as Paul says, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Salvation takes place the way that God has designed it so that he gets the glory because he is the one who is worthy of it and deserves it. Verses 30 and 31 tell us that. Demonstrate the the principle that God uses the weak and the foolish, not the mighty and noble. It it demonstrates that in our salvation. But now, as we go on to verses 1 through 5, he demonstrates the same principle again, but this time in ministry. To be effective in ministry is not about us. Again, it's still about him. God's ways are not our ways. He, He uses the foolish, the weak, and the base so that he gets the glory when the work is accomplished. Verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony 
of God. So here now we begin to see Paul recounting God's way of ministry as it took place there in Corinth. And he says, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech. In other words, my ministry wasn't effective because I was such an excellent speaker or I had these great and wonderful words to say. It's not that I was an awesome speaker and that I had this incredible wisdom. It's that God has chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, and that is why ministry took place with you. That is why the ministry was effective and the work was accomplished there. Not because I came with excellence of speech, but quite the contrary. If you do something for God and it is effective, never, ever, ever think that it's because of something you did. It's not the result of you. It's not because of you, but it's because of God and His Spirit working through you. Now, it's again contrary to our normal mentality, the mentality of the world. You can see it in the books that are on the bookshelves. Essentially, it's like this. I did it, and you can too if you follow my methods. And my book is better than the book next to me. So buy this one. (laughs) If you follow my ways, if you do it my way, then you can be successful too. And in ministry, we can fall into that same trap. We can fall into the, the... Well, if you do it this way, Well, if you really want to get someone saved, if you really want to lead them to the Lord, here's what you do. You have to start with with this topic or or start here and and work them this way. Or if you really want to minister to Jehovah's Witnesses, here's the verse to use. And it's only this verse, man. If you start here, there's nothing else they can say and you got them beat and you'll minister the gospel to them. Well, if it's your method, if it's only your way, then you've failed already. Because God doesn't use us because of our masterful methods or excellent speech or or our wonderful arguments. He uses the foolish, the weak, the base. Don't look to yourself, your personality, your convincing arguments. God doesn't need our excellent speech or wisdom. His word and the gospel message are effective on their own. Again, if you remember Isaiah 55, God promises his word will not return void. His word will accomplish what he set it forth to do. And so you don't have to be persuasive. You don't have to have the excellent speech. You just have to deliver his word, and his word will accomplish what he wants it to do. Remember, Paul in Romans 1.16 tells us that the, the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. You don't have to convince. You don't have to have the the superior arguments. You don't have to win the debate. The gospel message in itself is effective. It's power unto salvation. All we're called to do is simply share what God has already given to us, his word and the gospel message. That's what Paul says in verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, here's why ministry was effective. Not because I had excellent speech, convincing arguments, and I was able to thumb wrestle you to the, to the ground. It, it was because I determined to know nothing else. There was one thing that I kept the focus on. There was one thing that I centered my conversations around. There was one thing that I continued to share, and that was Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
if you want to be effective in ministry, you're called to be a minister. You're called to the ministry. And if you want to be effective in it, do it God's way. Here's what you do. Determine not to know anything else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is what people need. They need the simple gospel message. Don't water it down. Don't apologize for it. Determine to know nothing else. When people come seeking counsel or advice, it's Jesus that they need, no matter what the situation, be it marriage or finances or whatever the case, it's Jesus Christ that people need. You don't have to try to remember what Oprah says or find out you know, what the latest of psychology or philosophy says. Turn to Jesus Christ. Determined to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is what the people in your life need. We need Jesus. Whether they're Christians or not, we need Jesus. Don't let this world convince you that there's a need for anything else because it will try. It will try to tell you, well, those are old things and and now this is, you know, the 21st century and and now you need these things and, and you need to go this path or you need to share these things. But it's not true. Jesus is all that you need. Jesus is all that your neighbor needs. Jesus is all that your family needs. He's all that your coworkers need. He's all that the people of this body need. He's all that everybody needs. We need Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I determined to know nothing else. Now, this is incredible. You know why? Just by a show of hands, how many here know Jesus? Anybody know Jesus? Good. Most of you, that's good. How many of you, by a show of hands, know that Jesus Christ died was buried and resurrected three days later. Does anybody know that? That's great. See, here's the deal. You are qualified for ministry. You have everything that you need. You don't need anything else. Paul says, I determined to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can share that with the lost. You can share that with those who are hurting and in need. You can minister to one another. Just determined to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now at this point is when we begin to act like Moses, right? Making excuses. Well, I get nervous talking to people. Or I, I, I stutter and I don't speak very well. Or, you know, when I talk, things just come out wrong. I'm not very good at that. Or people don't like to hear what I have to say or whatever. But throw all that out the window. Paul says, look. That's how I was. It's okay. Look at verses 3 and 4. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, this is completely contrary to the world. If you ever take a speech class in high school or college, don't try to share this verse with the teacher as an excuse for why your knees are shaking. Because they'll fail you. They they teach you that from the moment you start to walk up to give your speech, you are making an impression on the people. And so you need to walk up with confidence. Make sure you don't trip on your way up. When you stand behind the the podium, make sure you take your stance firmly. Make sure you just present to them and, and make them know that you know exactly what you're talking about and they need to listen to you. And when you deliver it, don't be shaky. Don't, don't be all freaked out or, or scared. Don't stumble or apologize. Just give it boldly. And if it's a persuasive speech, then be persuasive and convince them that they need to take action on what you're talking about. 
but that's not the way of the gospel message. That's not the way of ministry. Paul says, look, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Much trembling. In other words, I was freaked out. I wasn't very bold. I didn't have persuasive words that convinced you. Instead, it was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. To be used by God, you don't have to be mighty or noble or wise. You don't have to have strong, excellent, persuasive speech or anything like that. If you experience weakness, if you've experienced fear and trembling, you're qualified. That's fine. Ministry doesn't depend on you being smooth and experienced. God will be effective through his word and through the gospel message, regardless of how timidly you present it. It doesn't matter. God's going to work anyways through his word and through the gospel message. You don't have to be polished. You don't have to be perfect. You can stumble. You can shake. You can quiver. Just deliver the message that God has given. Effective ministry is not because of persuasive words, but Paul says it's because of the power of the Spirit. May I remind you, nothing of eternal value can be done without the power of the Spirit. And so if you want to be effective in ministry, if you want to do ministry God's way, here's what you do. Number one, determine to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And number two, rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work. Understand that it's not up to you. The burden is not on you to convince, to convict, to change. God has simply called us to share. And His Word, the Gospel message, is effective on its own. You don't have to win the debate. It's not up to you to convince them and open their eyes. It's up to you to simply share God has already given us in His Word. It's up to you to share the gospel message. And He will do the rest. We're called to share His Word and allow the Spirit to do the work. This makes effective ministry available to everyone. It's not the elite. It's not the mighty, the noble, and the wise. God can and desires to use you in ministry to reach the lost to build up those that are in the body of Christ. Why? Verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, here's the point. Just like salvation, the point is so that God gets all the glory. See, Paul says, it wasn't in, in my strength or in my persuasive words, because then your faith would be in me and my convincing arguments, and how I can present the gospel, or, or how I can answer the questions. But it was done in weakness, but along with the working of the Spirit, so that your faith and your trust would be in God, so that He gets the glory, because He will not fail you. People will fail you. The Apostle Paul would have failed you. I will fail you. And you will fail whoever it is that you desire to minister to. But God will not. And so your job is not to convince them with your wisdom and your arguments. The job is not for you to present yourself, but to present Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that their faith and their trust will be in God. God uses the simple, the base, the weak, the foolish, 
with the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified because then he gets the glory. Then the person's faith and trust is in God and not man. Every one of us is called to ministry. You are not qualified, but you are called. You are not mighty or noble or wise, but you are called. God wants to use you to bring people to a saving knowledge of Him. He wants to use you to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort the weary, to encourage and refresh the downtrodden. He wants to use you in this ministry, in your workplace, in your family, in Okinawa, in Idaho. He wants to use you, but not because of you, not because you're qualified. He wants to use you to share his word and the gospel message while relying upon the Holy Spirit so that he gets all the glory. Because nothing of eternal value can be done without the working of the Holy Spirit. God is not looking for your wonderful skills and your masterful methods. God is looking for you to simply share the gospel the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified while relying upon the Holy Spirit to do the work. And to demonstrate that, I give you two examples. The two talking animals of the Bible. They demonstrate the principle that God taught in 1 Corinthians. Remember the two talking animals of the Bible? Number one, we have Balaam's donkey. It's in Numbers chapter 22, and if you would, please turn there. Numbers chapter 22. in the Old Testament. It's the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 22. The background for this portion is a man named Balaam who was a prophet of God. And he was hired by a man named Balak. Different guy, similar name just to confuse you. Balak was a king who wanted to get rid of the Israelites. And he hires Balaam to come and put a curse on the children of God, the the Israelites, God's people. And so Balaam is on his way. God had told him not to go, and then there was a whole situation, but he ends up going. And as he's going, he's riding his donkey. There's an angel of the Lord that stands with a sword drawn, and and the idea is, or what's going to happen is, if Balaam gets any closer, the angel is going to strike him dead. And so the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, but Balaam doesn't. The donkey stops in his tracks, and he wedges Balaam against the wall. And three times this happens where the donkey refuses to go forward because he sees the angel, and he sees that Balaam is about to be struck down. And it's after the third time that the donkey stops. It says in verse 28 of Numbers 22, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. Verse 30. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. This animal... The donkey that Balaam was riding 
stopped three times to save his life. And three times Balaam struck him and became furious at him. And finally, after the third time, God opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey says, hey, what gives, bud? Why are you hitting me? What are you doing this for? And Balaam says, well, because you're stopping. You're messing around. What are you doing? I'm trying to get there. And the donkey asks the question. They're having a conversation. It's a, a nice warm cup of tea conversation. Well, have I ever treated you this way? Balaam says, well, no, you haven't. You've been a good donkey. You've been faithful. Now, if you don't know this, here's some new information for you. Donkeys aren't known for their intelligence. They're not known for their excellent speech or their nobility. They're not known for their wisdom or their might. They're simple creatures, beasts of burden, not intelligent, spectacular creatures. We often say as a result, if God can use a donkey, he can use you. And it's true. It's the way that God works. He used Balaam's donkey. He can use you. And so we see this principle that we've been learning in 1 Corinthians demonstrated here in the donkey. But let's also look at the second talking animal of the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 3. Keep your thumb here in Numbers 22 or something there and turn to Genesis chapter 3. First book of the Bible, third chapter, verse 1. Here we find another animal that spoke in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. I'll wait for a second. There's more pages turning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? We won't go on to read the rest of the story, but here is in the Garden of Eden, a serpent, a snake that speaks. He opens his mouth and he has a conversation with Eve. God used the donkey, Balaam's donkey. The serpent that spoke was not used by God, but instead used by who? Satan. The devil used the serpent. God used the donkey. Notice what it says there in Genesis 3, 1 about the serpent. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. He was cunning. He had wisdom, nobility excellent speech and persuasive words. And that was the one that Satan used. The point, of course, is that if you insist on your cunningness, your might, your strength, your wisdom, your arguments, you will be not an instrument for God, but an instrument for the devil. But if you will realize what you truly are, weak, foolish, despise the things that are not and simply share God's word, the gospel message, you will be used like the donkey by God. Which would you rather be used by? The devil or the Lord? If you insist on doing it your way, accomplishing ministry in your strength, you'll be used by the enemy. 
we can see that in Genesis chapter 3, and we're still experiencing the effects today of what took place there because of the cunning serpent that the devil used. But if you will humble yourself, acknowledge what you truly are, acknowledge that we're donkeys, and simply share what God's Word says, relying upon the Holy Spirit, God can and will use you powerfully. Look at the result. Turn back to Numbers 22 very quickly. Verse 31. Numbers 22, 31. It says, Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way uh, with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. See, here's the deal. When you're used like Balaam's donkey, when you realize and you don't come with your excellent speech and your persuasive words, but you come by the strength of God's word, by the power of the Spirit, when you deliver what God has already spoken and the message that he has given to us, then the same thing will happen for you as what happened with Balaam's donkey. uh, Balaam's donkey spoke to him, and then Balaam's eyes were opened. And what does he see? He sees the angel of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord as a reference to Jesus Christ. Every time you see the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus Christ. It's a, a, a Christophany, some call it, but it's an appearance of Jesus Christ before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And so Balaam, his eyes are open because God used this donkey and he sees Jesus. And what is the result? He bowed his head and fell flat on his face. See, when you, instead of relying upon your ways and your methods, upon your strength, if you will just simply share God's word and the gospel message and allowing the spirit to do the work, relying God's Spirit to work. People's eyes will be opened. They will see Jesus. They will have the opportunity to reject or confess Him. But when they see Him and receive Him, they fall flat on their face to worship Him. And that is the response that we want. That that is what people in our life need. And so whether you're here and you're eager for ministry, you say, yes, I know I'm called to ministry. Or, or whether you're here and you're reluctant to ministry, oh, I, I'm just not comfortable sharing with people. I'm not comfortable talking about Jesus. I, I'm new in the faith or I'm just not good at it or, or whatever reason and, and thing that you might have. Understand this principle of God. He's called you to ministry. But he wants you to do it his way and not your way not relying upon your strength. And so all of your great ideas and wonderful methods, just toss them out the window and stick to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Stick to the Word of God because that is what is effective. And if you're scared and and shaky and weak and timid, that's okay. Take strength and confidence in the Word of God, in the Gospel of message because it's the power of God unto salvation. And be bold and share as God gives you opportunity. 
minister as God gives you opportunity. Join us as we go out and minister as God gives you opportunity and opens the doors. Be participating in ministry around here as you see people in need. Walk up to them and care for them and share with them Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Share with them the Word of God. Let God use you His way by you acknowledging that it's not about you but looking to Him to do the work by his word, by the gospel message, through the power of the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that you don't require us to be scholars. Lord, you don't require us to be the most intelligent and the smartest. But Lord, instead you go the other way and bring it to a level of simplicity. Lord, that any one of us might take part in the ministry of your kingdom. And so, God, we ask that you would use us. Help us, Lord, not to look to our strength. And, Lord, help us not to allow our weakness to hinder us, but help us to hold on to your word. Help us, Lord, to share and allow you, by your spirit, to do the work. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The worship team's going to come up and close us in one last song. It's joy to the world. And as they do, I just want to share with you something very briefly. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Regretfully, I will not be here this coming Sunday uh, for our Christmas Eve service. Pastor Poulet uh, or Pastor Tom will be down, so he might be sharing the word. Um, the Lord's still working that out, but we'll still have a Christmas Eve service here. I encourage you to be here, but the Lord has called um, my wife and I to go up and uh, spend this Christmas with my parents, which um, we've not had an opportunity to do since we've been married. And so God has opened the doors and we're going for it. And so I just want to say Merry Christmas. I love you guys. I wish I could be here with you, um, but I must be obedient to the Lord and make my parents happy. So... (laughs) But I do love you guys. I want to encourage you uh, just to approach this holiday season and really seek the Lord. Spend time with Jesus and remember what it's all about. Three quick scriptures. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel appeared and said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Remember, this is to be a time, this is to be a season. As you remember Jesus Christ, remember, this is good tidings of great joy. What God has done, the birth of the Savior Jesus Christ for us, is great news. It's cause for wonderful joy. And so whatever experience you're having, whatever you're going through this Christmas season, remember Jesus Christ and take great joy. The shepherds, as they responded in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, they went and they saw Jesus and they walked away glorifying and praising God. And I want to encourage you, make sure that you spend some time with Jesus this holiday season to the point that you can walk away glorifying and praising God. Don't let it pass by until you're able to do so. The wise men, Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, they they came and they searched out greatly. They, They went to great lengths to find Jesus. And it caused them to bow down and worship him. 
it caused them, in verse 10 it says, to rejoice exceedingly. This Christmas, please, read through the accounts in Luke, in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And remember who Jesus is and what it means that he was born. That's why we celebrate it. And make sure you do so to the extent, to the point, that you have great joy, that you bow down and worship and walk away glorifying and praising God. Amen? Let's stand and sing joy to the world. just uh, another year, Lord, to remember you, Lord. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would uh, just continue to be with us, Lord. Thank you for being faithful, God. I pray that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come up for prayer, and uh, God bless you.